This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So last week we talked about some Texas cases. There were more like cases we had never really ruled out when it came to what we were hunting with Israel Keys. Uh, and you know, we've we've started. I noticed that we have a couple of series on serial killers kind of sitting around that I'm uh, debating how we use them. And I think we're going to focus on one of them. I almost released it, and uh, we had some downtime. I had this like lovely time period where I got both the flu and the coronavirus at the same time. And I didn't do as much work during that time. I didn't feel like I was going to die or anything, but I didn't feel like doing anything. But we did come up with a handful of cases we wanted to cover. And the first ones were in Texas. The second ones were going back to the other coast because these were cases, you know, there's sort of like we never ruled them out. Uh, and I guess the first one that we would talk about is it's a, it's a really weird one. I had a pretty plausible way that this could have been Israel Keys. And I think you sort of looked at it and uh, thought I might uh, need some professional help. But that is sometimes the case with like what we work on. Um, so the first case, this is uh, a homicide case that really had like a lot of homes. And I, I say that because one of the things I've discovered over the years is when something happens on water, the jurisdiction that ends up with the case is not necessarily the jurisdiction of where a crime took place. And this is, this is a water case. It's from September of 2006. And there is not a lot of information out there, but I will tell you that the Portland, uh, Oregon Police Department, as well as I think it's Vancouver, um, have sort of open cold cases on this. Now, if you had read about this, a really long time ago, there would be like multiple references to body parts being found. And this even shows up on, I believe it's an episode of America's most wanted right now. You can go and, and read about this and I should probably put some of these links and um, in the show notes here because they're getting harder and harder uh, to find. But I, I saw that the city of Vancouver still has a blurb about him. It's real simple. It just says uh, name of the victim. Uh, this is under their unsolved homicides page. Name of victim is Doug Adam- Adamson, A-D-A-M-S-O-N. It's got a driver's license photo of a man with a like a slightly graying beard and a short haircut. Um, and it says the details are Doug Adamson was reported as the missing person from Portland, Oregon. He was murdered in Vancouver, Washington. 
and portions of his body were found on both the Oregon and Washington coastlines of the Columbia River. The manner of his death was homicide. So this uh, this does have like an interesting like element to it, like where it has like one thing that stands out. But so, so the Portland Tribune News in October of 2008, they ran an article about this case. And um, I'm, I'm just going to read from this and then we'll talk about this a little bit. Sometimes Portland homicide detective Brian Steed can wrap up his cases in neat and tidy packages like it happens on TV. The killing of Doug Adamson, though, is another situation. Two years ago, the southeast Portland man's dismembered corpse turned up floating in the Columbia River, just east of Government Island in East Portland. Today, though, the case has gotten plenty of media attention locally and has been aired and featured twice on America's Most Wanted, Steve and his partner, Detective Ken Wadham, are not much further in solving the homicide than they were two years ago. Uh, that's in part the reason Steed has taken his confidential case file public, sharing its contents with the Portland Tribune in the hope that readers will help out with information. It's extremely rare that homicide detectives get far into an investigation and still have no idea who might have, of who might have committed a murder or why. In this case, the problem is almost the opposite. You could almost say that Steed and Wadham have too many suspects and too many possibilities. That's the frustrating part of this case, Steed said. At this point, virtually the whole field is wide open. Most people spend their lives not imagining they could ever be singled out for murder by anybody. So how could there be so many suspects in the death of Doug Adamson? Adamson was a big man standing six foot three. He was 52 years old and an unemployed truck mechanic when he died. He had been divorced twice and had visitation rights to a 13-year-old daughter he usually paid his child support on time, and he received disability payments for an injured knee. He also had a problem with booze, chugging cheap vodka from half-gallon plastic bottles, his friends say. Occasionally, they told police he'd dabble in meth. Interviews with friends and family make him sound like a bit of a lost soul, never quite fitting in and often rubbing people the wrong way. He was kind of a bonehead at times, said his cousin Patrick Adamson. But most of the time, he was just a damn good guy. He wasn't socially well-adjusted. He'd say the wrong things at the wrong time pretty much all the time, said Lisa Rylander, the mother of Doug Adamson's daughter. But for a few months before he died, he seemed to be making a change, trying to be nicer, and he had a big heart. On September 6th of 2006, Adamson spent two hours on the phone calling his two brothers, his mother, his sister, and his cousins. He'd been estranged from his brother Steve for years, but on that day, Steve picked up the phone and promised to help Doug Adamson find a job at his workplace, Precision Cast Parts. The two men cried happy tears as Doug told his mother when he called her minutes later. Adamson had made a habit of alerting his housemates when he'd be away from the rental home in the 9700 block of Southeast Duke Street. His roommate, Patty Packard, would later tell police Doug called her that evening from a Southeast Portland bar called the Queen of Hearts and said he was going to visit his cousins in Estacada. His cousins, however, told police that he never arrived. Steve Adamson, a tall, silver-haired man who looks a lot like his dead brother, 
said people have come to refer to Doug as the Columbia River Man since his death. And Steve likes that the, fee- that the name has the feel of Native American mythology to it, like Doug will live on forever. He says he keeps Doug's ashes in his closet, looks at his belongings every day, and still does some snooping in hopes of tracking down the killer. Looking back on the last day they spoke, he wonders why his brother spent so much time talking to family that day. It was sort of out of the norm, Steve said. Doug seemed happy, maybe even on drugs. Steve adds this, but also wonders, was it like he knew that something was going to happen? On September 9th of 2006, the Oregon Department of Transportation workers found Adamson's 1989 Chevy pickup, red with a gray left side front panel, squatting on the shoulder of southbound Interstate 205, a half mile south of Columbia Boulevard. On September the 12th, having received no word from him, his housemate, Packard, called police to report Adamson as missing. On the evening of September 17th, a couple launched their boat into the Columbia River at Portland's Chinook Landing and anchored near the east end of Government Island to fish for steelhead. They spotted moonlight reflecting off a black bag that was floating in the water, and they cut it open. They hoped that it might be something valuable. But they were overwhelmed by an unbearable stench, and they called 911. It turned out to be a beheaded human torso. The autopsy concluded that a fine-tooth saw had been used. Two days later, a gardener found a leg lying on the Vancouver shore. And the next day, a woman walking her dog on the beach in Vancouver noticed that the dog was urinating on what turned out to be a human arm and hand. Fingerprints allowed police to identify Adamson. And later, a left arm bearing a tattoo commemorating his deceased father, showed up floating well downstream. So Steed took on the case as detective. With a full head of white hair and a classic cop mustache, Steed was an officer for 20 years, and he pretty much looks like you'd expect him to. He says that he and his partner investigated a number of theories, including drug smugglers, biker gangs, family members, roommates, and even neighbors. At this point, He says he's leaning away from the murderer, having been someone close to Adamson, but adds, we haven't been able to rule anybody out, absolutely. Early in the case, Steve thought drugs probably were involved somehow, but the evidence for that theory has been inconclusive. Although he had been a drug user, Adamson had nothing in his background that would lead you to believe he would be a dealer or a mule or anything like that. The bag that was found bearing Adamson's torso had the brand name World Famous, made in Canada. It was the size of a hockey bag and was popular for networks that smuggle marijuana. Meanwhile, Packard's mention of Adamson having been at the Queen of the Hearts offered another possibility. That bar is frequented by members of the Gypsy Jokers motorcycle gang, a group that police sometimes refer to as an outlaw gang. On the other hand, another friend of Adamson told police Packard told her Adamson was at spot 79 with a friend named Mike who wrote a Harley Davidson. One theory, according to Steed, is that Adamson, known to mouth off when drunk, got in a fight that became fatal after leaving a bar. The other possibility, Steed acknowledges, is that the killer was closer to Adamson. According to what his ex-girlfriend, Lisa Rylander, later told police, 
The month before his death, Adamson told her he'd been in a fight with his cousin Patrick. He woke up that night to find Patrick standing over him with a knife, as if he was going to stab him. Patrick, when contacted by the Portland Tribune, denied that and called it ridiculous. He said that Adamson didn't get into fights. He didn't really fight. He'd get aggressive, but that would be the extent. Steed said he interviewed the cousins and he found nothing to support this story. Meanwhile, Steve Adamson says that he spoke to a former co-worker of Doug's who said the dead man had suspected male roommates of bearing him ill will. But the roommate denied it and said that Adamson had been a good friend. There was another possibility that was alleged by a woman said to have been a useful police source in the past. Contacting police, she fingered some of Adamson's neighbors by name. Steed says the woman was dismissed as not being credible. Although Steed, in an unusual move, has opened the homicide file to the Portland Tribune, he would not release the manner of death so that bogus tipsters can be weeded out. It remains an open question why Adamson was beheaded and dismembered. Was it because at 270 pounds he was too heavy to carry? Did he not fit in the bag otherwise, or did the killer do it to make a statement? Steed said that while he believes Adamson last used his cell phone in eastern Vancouver, the biggest obstacle has been the lack of a specific crime scene or a location where the killing took place. And Steed still has so many unanswered questions. Who was Adamson drinking with the night he died? And where did he go when he left the bar? It's really going to take somebody who knows something to come forward. Police records show that some clues and locations have raised more questions than they've answered in the homicide case of Doug Adamson. On September 9, 2006, three days after anyone admits talking to him, Adamson's truck was found on the shoulder at southbound Interstate 205, just south of the Columbia Boulevard exit, as if returning from Vancouver, Washington but who left it there. Sick of losing his keys, Adamson had long ago popped the ignition so anyone could drive it. And on September 10th, his neighbor Rick drove the truck back to Adamson's place, telling police he recognized it and he assumed that Adamson had been arrested for DUI. One of the few clues in the slang is the world-famous bag in which Adamson's torso was found. Made in Canada, the closest retail outlet to sell it is in Vancouver, British Columbia. Detective Brian Steed says it's a type of popular among marijuana smugglers. But Doug's brother, Steve Adamson, wonders whether one of his relatives might have purchased a bag while in Canada. Fueling the speculation about a drug connection were phone records showing that two of the last conversations Adamson had were with two prepaid cell phone numbers purchased with cash at a Fred Meyer store. Not registered to an individual, such phones are popular among drug traffickers. Police have been unable to track the identities of those who, at the time, were using the numbers 360-450-8647 and 503-718-6541. Adamson lived with housemates off Southeast Foster Road, just east of I-205, and he socialized with his neighbors and his housemates. Steed wonders why they took so long to realize there was a problem when his truck turned up since if he'd been arrested for DUI, his vehicle would have been towed. Steed says Adamson's cell phone signals on the last day he was believed to be alive appeared to be coming from East Vancouver. Adamson was thought to have a friend in the area known as Theron, T-H-E-R-O-N, 
but detectives have been unable to locate him. Uh, this comes from Nick Budnick writing for the Portland Tribune two years after the fact in October of 2008. So obviously this is not a couple or a pair. It's just a guy. Mm-hmm. And I did, you know, I went looking. That That's an interesting, it's an interesting case to me because it has a pretty specific timeline on it, if that makes sense. You can go and like, you can tell when his truck is found. And I think that's how this case gets on my radar is Keyes talks about moving vehicles. What's weird is finding the body parts scattered like they did and him being in water. I ultimately decided to talk about this case today because, well, one, it's unsolved. But two, this is a case that is weird for a couple of reasons. First of all, who takes a six foot three, 270 pound guy? It's weird. Um, two, this would have been after Keyes' boat had blown up. So the engine on his boat would not have been working in 2006. Isn't that right? Like in September of 2006? That's correct, yeah. So my thinking was, one of the last conversations Keyes has with the AUSA and with the members of the Anchorage police and with the FBI, he's talking about being in a kayak and moving along at a lake at Lake Crescent, he's describing dropping a body from the kayak and like the location of it. And they blow him off here in a way that honestly pissed me off. It pissed me off because he was trying to give them something. It just wasn't what they were looking for. And I felt like if they would have let him talk there and responded the way homicide detectives would, I felt like they would have gotten some information there to find a body. One of the hypotheses I came up with is if I were trying to move a body in a canoe or a kayak or even a John boat, I would need to dismember that body. And I think the reason they didn't find a crime scene for this, if I were to think that this was keys, and it's not that I do, it's just that I can't say, no, it's not. Um, I could see him catching Doug Adamson, either near the bars or over by government Island, or even in East Vancouver. And the crime scene being at government Island, which has a fishing preserve as part of it. Like people go there to fish. Um, as far as the date and time, this is roughly the first week of September in 2006, I believe. So if you go to the timeline that we have from the FBI related to Israel keys, he comes back from Anchorage, Alaska, on the 7th, and he has a rental car 
during that time frame. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure if I've got it like all kind of lined up for him. If that's definitely I don't key. have anything. Um, let's see. You said uh, September of 06. Yeah. It's a, he does a trip. Okay. So he goes Seattle to Anchorage on um, the, the first uh, of September and he's back on September 7th in 2006. Page 7 to 34 on the FBI timeline. The entry third from the top is a round trip where he goes, on September the 1st, he goes up to Anchorage from Seattle. Yeah, that's comes, correct. He comes back on September the 7th. And then he has, like, there's this car rental thing where I believe it's actually Kimberly. Yeah, it's not his car rental. But then... Shortly thereafter, like he's traveling again, um, on to this is where they go down to San Diego, and then there's the whole Mexico thing that happens with a border crossing. That's on October 22nd. Uh, it's about a month after this. So my thinking is he goes up to visit Kimberly because she's in Anchorage. Yeah. He comes back home. He gets home, and he does his thing. Except he does Seattle to basically Vancouver, um, and when he does that, I you know he takes potentially takes Doug Adamson. That's two hours away. It's on. It's so basically for people that like can't don't have like a great idea what this looks like. Seattle and Tacoma and I think Everett, they're sort of the transportation hub for Washington. If you were to go through the Yakima Indian Reservation, you would come to eastern Vancouver. Or you could just drive straight down uh, basically I-5. So my thinking was, Keys goes on this trip, doesn't have a very good time or whatever, comes home, he's itching. He goes and you know he's going to go fishing or he's going to go be Israel Keys, whatever the hell he does. And this is the guy that he ends up going after. And that's why none of the other paths that they pursue here, because they pursue these for years. Like these detectives are, some of them are retired. Some of them have moved up. There's still a cold case uh, investigator on both sides of this. I have not had the best of luck discussing this with these particular detectives. I have talked to uh a number of people trying to get more information. I do believe I'll be able to get more information to potentially rule this out of my keys list, but I've never been able to timeline wise, this guy's two and a half hours away, literally on the other side of the uh, Yakima reservation. Um, And I know keys was further up, but if he's flying back into Seattle, two hours, one way or the other, it's not going to make that big a difference. So my thinking was him having this guy, potentially kill killing him on government Island and then having to get him off government Island. I did notice that the night I narrowed this down to, so keys has got to be here, which means September the 7th to September the 9th, but it's got to be before his car is found. His truck is found. Cause I, in my head, keys is the one moving the truck. There's some rainstorms in there. And if you're in a kayak with a dismembered body and a bag or multiple bags, uh, and it starts to rain, and you're crossing the Columbia River to get back to your vehicle, which I believe you probably would have been. Um, and it's dark, 
you ditch the body. And that's how the body parts wash up because he ditches them out of the kayak. Uh, how far away from his uh, from where he was found was his truck? Where was his truck before his neighbor drove it home? So his truck is found at, it's off 205 at the Columbia Boulevard exit as if returning from Vancouver, Washington. So Columbia Boulevard exit. It's a distance of about 12 miles. So somebody had to have moved the truck. Yeah, yeah, it's moved. It, it can't be, like, he's he's too far away uh, to have been dumped out of his truck, if that's what you're thinking. Like, he was in the bed of the truck and somebody chucked him? Uh, yeah, I wasn't really thinking anything one way or the other. I just remember, yeah, the neighbor driving the truck home, which was crazy, thinking he had gotten a DUI or whatever. It, so that made the story weird. Yeah, it, it definitely makes it weird. And then the fact that he had, like, had all these, like, reconnections with his family right beforehand, that was weird. I appreciated the statement that, like, he was mostly just a drunk, but he dabbled in meth. Yeah. Because, you know, that's a, an interesting way to look at it, I guess. I have a feeling, more than likely, um, based on sort of what was put out there, um, I think this guy probably made somebody mad, right? Um, I won't discount that it was keys, but just a lot of the things that come up, it seems like it would be less likely. For one thing, I feel like it's less likely for keys to kill somebody when he's coming back into town as opposed to right before he leaves town. Yeah. But, you know, given the proximity, and, and basically that's what we're sort of swinging back around to, right? These are cases that are still open of either missing or found murdered people that are, they happen to be uh, geographically close to where we know Israel Keys was. Yeah. And without more information one way or the other, we can't say for certain it wasn't him because you know, as we get farther and farther out from, uh, for one thing, his death, Key's death, and then from these uh, murders that occurred, you know, more and more things should be getting solved, right? One way or yeah. the other, whether they're, uh, you know, whoever they're attributed to. And so as time passes, you know, there's way less cases, right? Because. Yeah one by one they're solved. And so I do think that there were some things that would point me away from keys, but definitely uh, time and place wise, it should be considered. Yeah. I just, I sort of, I leave him here just because keys had been traveling right before uh, this guy sort of vanishes, which, you know, puts keys on a potential, it puts him in a potentially, like if he's been with Kimberly and had to behave himself and he's coming back down and wanting to do something, this guy could be on that list. Um, and also the coverage from, even though Doug Adamson made America's most wanted, um, they basically think it's drug trafficking. Like that's ultimately the push here is that this is some kind of drug trafficking. Case. 
The disposal seems uh, sort of like that. I've never quite understood um, how that works exactly. I um, can't even see how it would work with like an anger scenario. I And I haven't discounted that. I just haven't gone... Well, that makes sense. I think. Um, well, the re, the re, I think he was probably shot. I know they haven't. Um, they have not released his um, how he died, uh, but I, I have a feeling he was probably shot and uh, he was cut up to uh, to ease disposal to aid yeah. disposal um, because he was such a big guy, and um, it would have been really hard for whoever did it. Uh, to have, you know, disposed of him otherwise. And um, I, I definitely don't think, if he was shot, I would say for sure it wasn't Keyes. Um, and I also, I don't know, I feel like uh, Keyes would have done a better job of making sure the body wasn't found, right? That's why I think it was, that's why I described it as being kind of haphazard or rushed because I don't see it being Keyes any other way. Like, it has to be some kind of mistake or problem because problems are the things that like, he's sort of like, aside from Samantha Koenig, he reports a situation where we had a problem before. And that's like with Bill and Lorraine Courier and not being able to burn the house and not being able to do anything more with them. And like, he thought that would be an obvious body to find. And I think one of the reasons he gives them up is because he felt like, that's the minimum amount of information I have to give these people so that they know that I did this, but I haven't done anything else to these bodies other than throw them in bags and cover them in a bunch of junk. And it's only been a year. So they should still be there. Like that's how the couriers like come on the table. But you have to think he also dismembered and did similar things to what happened to Doug Adam Adamson to Samantha Koenig for ease of disposal. Similar, but also different, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he dropped her with concrete. Right. And I mean, he had put up a building anticipating doing this, right? Yeah. Uh, anticipating uh, taking the, whoever was in the coffee shop that night. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I'll be able to, to rule this one out. Um, but I, uh, I'm hoping that I get more information on this. I am in contact with some of the detectives on this. It's cycled through uh, multiple cold case people over the years. Some of them have been more forthcoming, and, and others are are less forthcoming. Yeah, and it seems almost like there's too much information. Um, like I was saying, and what you. Yeah, it it's just there's too overwhelming many that it could be. Um, I had said that, like, I would talk about an unusual pair. I looked at this one case that is a pair, but it's in California, and it's it's a weird one. But I still I wanted to mention it because um, somebody had actually asked me about. Uh, case another podcast was covering, which was this uh, triple homicide. Definitely, it, it isn't keys. There's two people locked up for it. But this is a, a case that's in uh, Mendocino County, California. So this is going to be like the North Coast. 
area. And there's no good way to, to like tell this case. There is a, there's a Charlie project entry for it and there's NamUs entries for it, but it's confusing because of how it all went down. And this is actually from August of 2005. So on August 26, 2005, a man named Michael William Desmet, he's 35 years old. He's 6'1", 200 pounds. Uh, he's got blonde hair and green eyes. He goes missing with a 52-year-old man named Joseph Clarence Wilma Jr. Joseph Clarence William Jr. They leave Humboldt County, California, and they go up to Covella, California. Wilma has a remote property there. Now, they're, they're driving Wilma's truck, which is a maroon 1998 Toyota pickup truck. Neither of these guys were seen or heard from again after that alive. There are different stories about what was going on on that property, but the gist of it is partly on that property and on a nearby property, there was a large marijuana garden being grown there. Now they, they go poof, but In April 2007, a hiker in the area finds a human jawbone. And the area that they find the jawbone in is heavily wooded. It's known as Waleti Flats. It's near Wilma's property, but not on Wilma's property. And a search of the area that the hiker finds the jawbone, it turns up the 1998 Toyota pickup truck. So this is almost two years, not quite. It's a year and a half and a little more later. Um, and then they also, near the, the vehicle, they find a femur. So the femur and the jawbone are linked to Joseph Clarence Wilma Jr. So technically, he's not missing anymore. Uh, but investigators there at the Mendocino County Sheriff's uh, Office, they believe that both of them were murdered and they haven't released why uh, this is one of the cases that I am starting to work a little bit with the people involved. There are multiple counties here. Uh, Humboldt County is involved. Mendocino County is involved. The detectives have followed up on multiple leads. Now the one news article you can find out there about this particular case is not super helpful. The, I'll I'll give you this. It's from the Press Democrat. It's actually from May of 2007. Um, and this is Glinda Anderson writing. She writes, pot growing suspects jawbone found. Uh, jawbone found that a remote Covella area has been identified as belonging to a Redway man who disappeared in 2005 after law enforcement officers eradicated a large pot garden on his Covella property. Uh, according to Mendocino County Sheriff's Lieutenant Rusty No, a hiker found the one bone. The bone, which included some teeth, belongs to Joseph Clarence Wilma Jr. Wilma had been reported missing in September of 2005 as having gone missing earlier in 2005. Other bones have since been recovered, and that's since the initial April 6th discovery, in a heavily wooded area of Waleti Flats, located in the northwestern hills of Covello, but they have not been connected to Wilma. There's another man, and they list 
Michael William Desmet's information. They say that he was 33. Um, they list him as having been from Shelter Cove and basically say he had been reported missing earlier, but they disappeared at the same time. Uh, both men were in the Willetti Flats area and Wilma reportedly owned property there when they disappeared. Wilma's death and Desmond's disappearance are believed to be related to illegal marijuana cultivation. While deputies were searching for additional remains, they found an additional 4,500 plants, seized the plants, um, and they called this, you know, marijuana area, uh, like that's growing territory out here. So this has not been super investigated, this particular case. The obvious reason why is they just assume it's related to the illegal marijuana trade. Right. And what's so unfortunate about that is like now it's completely legal, like even recreational use. Well, I mean, this is California in 2005, though. So this it's, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. Um, so the 2005 medical marijuana would have been legal. So medical use was legalized in California in 1996. And recreational use has been legal in California since 2016. So this is, it's unfortunate for a number of reasons. One of those reasons being that we're not going to know what happened to these guys. It's not being investigated seriously. I've had trouble um, even convincing people to hear me out on this particular case. The Santa Rosa Press Democrat did cover it a little bit, but that's a real small paper. And if you weren't reading that paper at the time, you would not have known that it happened. Um, the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office and the Mendocino County Sheriff's Office, they have information on their web pages where you can read a little bit more about this case. It's not much more than what I've said here. Um, but the bottom line is this is a pair of people who went missing and a jawbone was later found in a femur that confirm it um, years later. Um, but they they went missing in August of 2005. So, of course, like the first thing I really did there um, was I went back through the Israel Keys timeline. And I, I basically said, what was he doing in August of 2005? And the only thing we know for sure is that he was using the ferry a lot. Um, he was right. he crossed back and forth the ferry a number uh, on the ferry a number of times, and he kept a lot of those tickets. Which you and I have always wondered, why did he keep those tickets? He definitely has a Port Townsend to Keystone um, ferry ticket on the day that these guys, uh, uh, or the days that uh, around the time these guys went missing, but. There is a blank spot on the 26th. The last ferry ticket is on the 23rd. The next one after that is um, August 31st. So this is one of those things where is it possible? It's a it's a giant maybe. He would not have known that these bodies were found, uh, that the bones were found of one of the bodies. Uh, so it is a pair. They were left in the woods. Is it keys related? I don't know. I came across this. Because I got to thinking about some of the things that Keyes said. And this is how I've started explaining it to the different cold case detectives I've, I've been talking to in Oregon and California and in Washington. I found a case that I believe is the first victim of Israel Keyes. And that's the whole reason we're here talking about him on the 10-year anniversary of his death. 
what I started doing was um, I went looking for unsolved rapes. And I was specifically looking for uh, a period of time where there were some unsolved rapes that weren't explained to my satisfaction. And I narrowed it down to 1996 to 1998 that I wanted to look. And I thought about some of the things that Keyes had said. Um, and this is how I convinced um, but the next case. It, they, there's actually a, a cold case detective digging into it to see what evidence is in this case. But the way I explained it to them was Keyes talked a lot about remote areas and he talked a lot about times and places of things that he was familiar with, if that makes sense. So when he was looking back on cases, I got the impression that the very first case was probably going to be in Oregon. I found these odd cases in Washington and other places in the nineties, but you and I, we, first of all, we fixated a little bit on the fact that he was talking about 14 years. And that gave me like, if he's sitting there in 2012 and he's thinking of 2011, 2012, and he's going back in time, 14 years is, is when he considered it to have been his criminal career, like when he was seriously doing things, then we were going to be looking for something 1997, 1998. And what I wanted to do was I, I wanted to go through and find Oregon cases where there was some odd stuff going on. The very first thing I find that stands out to me is about 30 minutes from where they would have lived in Bend and, and Maupin, Oregon. And I find, I find two cases back to back where teenagers are sexually assaulted. One of the things he specified when he was talking about the rape in Bend, Oregon or Mopin, Oregon was that he had never taken someone before. Do you remember those words? Like, he, uh, yeah, I believe so. Where he was talking about like putting her up on ropes and, and all of that. And I took that to heart. The reason I took that to heart was because I realized that there was a possibility of him being so specific with his words. Cause he didn't want to be linked to other assaults. In July of 1997, there were several sexual assaults in a river park uh, in Albany, Oregon. And I kind of ruled those out. But the ones I couldn't rule out were cases that occurred in December of 1997 and February of 1998. The way that these cases only pop up, first of all, they involve juvenile victims who are female. 
they don't have any identifying information in the cases. Um, I've had to go digging in a lot of ways, but I've only found a minimal amount of information um, on these cases. Found one where a girl in a hotel that was very close to Moffin, Oregon, uh, during sort of the holiday season, she was pulled into a dark area. Think like where the, the ice machine would be and the vending machine would be. And she was sexually assaulted by a tall man that she didn't see. And then he vanished. Um, this happens in uh, late 1997. It's literally the, it, the week between Christmas and New Year's. So technically it's spilling over into 1998, which we have always had some questions about where his exact locations would be. Um, Cause you know, as we know, his family had begun the process of moving to New York and then on to Maine. That case stood out to me. And I wondered if maybe the first victim would have been around there. And I looked for a very long time um, for cases that would have met all of what I call the Israel keys criteria that were out of the Oregon area. Now I'll tell you this, I found one and I'm not going to name them here. I found one couple case out there where an elderly couple went missing and they're found in a burned out car and it is bizarre. Um, I also found the case of a hiker who goes missing and the way that the hiker is found is very odd because he's declared to be a fall. But for some reason, his toboggan that he was wearing is very far away from him and makes it more like he was running away from someone. But the, the case that I wanted to talk to you about today that I believe is probably the first victim of his real keys um, I've talked to the family. I've talked to the cold case detectives. If it is Israel Keys, I believe it'll be proven. It's a weird one. And it got on my radar because the Clackamas, Oregon uh, Sheriff's Department, uh, at the urging of a family member, put it back on their Twitter feed, and then they put it up on the, the Sheriff's Office website. A very odd case. It's actually a man who went missing. There is a, a website that you can go and visit to read a little bit more about this case. It hasn't been super active. It's on Facebook. It hasn't been super active in a while. But uh, there's a couple of old news articles about it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read one of them now to sort of explain what happened. This is an article from June 12th of 1998. I don't have a source on it because it's been copied and pasted so many times. And I was able to verify that it's a legit news article from one of the detectives I spoke to early on. I do not know the source of it. The source that I'm pulling from right now is a website. It's a Facebook page called what happened to Gregory David white. And the news article is from June 12th, 1998. It says, 
burned out car, scant clue in man's disappearance. Partially buried camping gear belonging to Greg White, 34, is found nearby in the Timothy Lake area. Greg White went to the mountains to get away, to fish, to camp, and catch up on the sleep that he missed while working the graveyard shift as a machinist at the Benchmade Knife Company in Oregon City. Two weeks ago today, an excited White, 34, of Gresham, told co-workers about a camping trip he planned at Timothy Lake near Mount Hood. He never returned. Neither his family nor his co-workers have seen him since May the 29th. A ranger found White's burned-out car on a forest service road near Timothy Lake. White's charred tent and a sleeping bag were found nearby, partially buried. But an extensive search of the heavily wooded area turned up no trace of the missing man. That was the last we heard from him, said Chuck Buell, personnel director for the Precision Knife for the Precision Knife Company. Some guys will do that, just not show up because they don't want to work here anymore. But it didn't fit what we knew about Greg. What coworkers didn't know about Greg White was that he suffered from depression. Relatives said he had taken an entire bottle of aspirin in January in a futile attempt to kill himself. His mother, Lynn English, said her son was troubled and sometimes slept in his car where he kept most of his possessions. But his brother said it appeared that he had turned his life around in recent months. Although he had quit a job last winter, he liked the new job. He was living with his estranged common-law wife, Shannon Dimmitt, at her Gresham apartment with her six-year-old daughter, Marissa, and his 14-year-old stepdaughter, Andrea. They worked different shifts, so they didn't have to see each other much, said his brother, Don White, of Albany, Oregon. But he loved his girls, and he was a good dad. By late Sunday, Dimmitt became concerned when Greg didn't arrive home. She called his brother. The family filed a missing persons report with the Gresham Police Department, who notified the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office. And the following day on June 1st, a ranger found the burned-out hulk of White's 1997 Ford Taurus on Forest Service Road 5890 near Timothy Lake. The car was slightly off the road in a ditch with its front bumper up against some small trees. It was pointed towards US-26. It wasn't just burned inside. It was burned down to the frame, and even the tires were gone. Last Thursday, Clackamas County Sheriff's Deputy Chris Nolt was told about the abandoned car and traced it to White. And last Friday, Nolte organized a search party, and for two days, officials used dogs, four-wheel drive vehicles, and searchers to comb the nearby woods. Co-workers scoured back roads in their Jeeps and their pickups. Family members posted more than 200 flyers at campgrounds and at small stores in the area. Although police suspect White's disappearance may be a suicide, they have not ruled out foul play. There's a lot of theories that come into play, Nolte said, but we just don't feel comfortable walking away. Nolte said he's confident White is not within a half mile of where his car was found, based on the extensive grid search of the heavily wooded area. He thinks the car was left there where it was, rifled through, and torched sometime later, and that White caught a ride or walked away, either to kill himself or to get lost, in which case there are a million acres where he could be. White's family members say not knowing has been agony. Nobody's sleeping, Don White said. We're all just falling apart. I have a bad feeling that he's out there somewhere dead and he may never be found. Don White said the family can't help but wonder 
why Greg didn't leave a note for them if he did kill himself. They wonder if he wrote a note that was destroyed when the car was set on fire. I can speculate until the cows come home, Don said. Uh, he could have killed himself or someone did it to him. We just want to know so we can get on with our lives. It just doesn't add up. And there's a note at the bottom asking anyone with information about Greg White's disappearance to call the Gresham Police Department. So that's, a, that's an older article. And, you know, by all accounts there, it sort of reads like a suicide, right? Well, that's what I initially would have uh, thought of it, yeah. It gets weirder. There's another news article. Um, it's about a year and a half later. Again, I don't have the source on this, but you can find it on what happened to Gregory David White on Facebook. This is from a January 13th, 2016 posting, and I've been able to verify the contents of it. I just haven't been able to verify where the exact source was. I was told it was a very small local paper um, and that people are basically typing it from newspaper clippings because the paper is no longer in existence. I don't know how accurate that is. But this says, a Gresham man reported missing in 1998 and thought to have been suicidal is now thought to be the victim of foul play. Bones discovered last September in a fire pit near Timothy Lake have been determined to be those of Greg White, 35 years old, said Deputy Andrew McVeigh of the Clackamas County Sheriff's Department. Authorities have not released the cause of death, but say that evidence points to homicide. White was last seen May 29, 1998, which is Memorial Day weekend, by the way. He was reported missing several days later. Authorities later found his 1997 Ford Taurus abandoned and torched on a Forest Service road about 30 miles southeast of Estacada. A two-day search from White turned up no clues. Family members reported White had been suicidal in the past and was camping alone in the woods. A person picking huckleberries stumbled across skeletal remains in a primitive campsite on September the 2nd, 1999. Police originally thought the remains were those of a female between the ages of 20 and 40. Forensics experts later took DNA samples from White's mother and sister to arrive at this positive identification. Everybody was surprised. They had a high rate of probability that this was a female, said McVeigh. White worked as a machinist at the Benchmade Knife Company in Oregon City for less than a month and had been a model employee, said Alan Day, a manufacturing technician who hired White. After White's mother, Lynn English, called the company to report White missing, Day and a co-worker combed areas near Clear Lake and Timothy Lake to look for him. He was going camping and fishing for the three-day weekend, and that's the last we saw him, said Day. The wait has been agonizing for White's family, English, his wife, Shannon Dimmitt, and two daughters, Andrea, now 16, and Marissa, 8, all of Gresham. Of course, there's a sense of closure and relief knowing he didn't just walk away or kill himself. White's mother praised the Clackamas County Sheriff's detectives, Linda Estes and Jeff Green, for not giving up on the case, even when the signs seemed to point to suicide, or later, when an anthropologist called in to examine the bones, said the body was likely that of a woman. We really felt like it was him when they found the bones, she said. Anyone who camped in the area where the remains were found, or who visited U.S. Forest Service roads 5870 or 5890 during the weekend of May 29, 1998, should contact the Clackamas County Sheriff's Department at 
Okay. So this, this that's how he gets on my radar. Basically, uh, this is a case in an area where if we take Israel Keys at his words, which is what you sort of asked me to do at different times, he says, if you know an area well enough, you might not get exactly what you're looking for. But if you go somewhere where there's people, you can get something. Timothy Lake and this campsite are 36 miles from the home in Mopin, Oregon, that Israel Keys had lived at the previous year in 1997. Well, part of 96 as well. Right. And so we don't know exactly what the timeline was for when they moved. And, um, you know, that was up in the air. But this would have been uh, this. So I, I eventually came to the conclusion that this would have been tight, but probably doable uh, based on him uh, going into the army in Albany, New York. Uh, like when was uh, it? About a month and a week later. Okay. And so it would be really tight. And um, so the biggest thing I feel, I, I can't, I don't know that you just said this, but I feel like um, Greg White's remains were found uh, not just randomly, but weren't they in a fire? Yeah, they were in a fire pit at a campsite. Right. And so, you know, obviously that immediately undoes um, the suicide angle. Yeah. And I've gotten a little more information from them and some, uh, there was some rope at the crime scene. There was uh, some, there was a buried bucket. Um, There's some other things going on there that I can't talk about yet, but I'm hoping that. um, So first of all, I think this is the first one. I think this is the graduation from rape to murder. I think this accounts for the, I never said it was a woman. When they're questioning if Israel Keys was satisfied and tied up the next person after the Maupin, Oregon victim. I think that this accounts for uh, remote victims being at campsites and I think that this actually accounts for him having known this area. I think he would have been all up and down that mountain and would know the area around um, Mopin all the way over to Timothy Lake. And most importantly, I believe that because of this being likely the first crime, I believe he probably left evidence behind. Um, in some of the items that they were able to recover included a camp stove with propane cylinders Um, I genuinely believe in the buried camping gear and the stuff that was found with Greg White's body that DNA or fingerprints was possibly collected and would have been run before Israel Keys was even a a thought. But I don't think, okay, um, so his camping gear was found partially buried uh, around the time his car was found, and that wasn't too long after he went missing, right? Correct. Then his body wasn't found, or his remains weren't found until the the next uh, September. So September of ninety nine. Right. So he goes missing in May of night uh, Memorial Day weekend, May of nineteen ninety eight, and so we have a full year, and then you have June, July, August, September. He's found 
about three month, a uh, year and three months, so fifteen months total before his body was found. Now, okay, so a couple of interesting things about that. Uh, they initially pegged the remains to be that of a twenty to forty year old woman. Correct, and that's how they announce it. And then the news. Have, Go ahead. I've actually seen where his sister disputes the fact that they took her DNA. Interesting. Um, she says uh, they have never did my DNA and they've never talked to me about it, um, which is very strange, right? Yeah. It it does make sense uh, if it is him. I'm not really sure what the point of that was because uh, it wasn't in a, you know, they weren't officially disputing it. They were literally commenting on something. It, it does appear to be his sister, though. Um, and I wasn't sure if he had other sisters, maybe. Um, I let's see. I found his obit at one point. <laughs> and so that was another thing I thought, you know, it didn't necessarily have to be that sister. Right. Um, I thought it said the mother and I actually thought one of the, things the I read mother and sister. daughters. No, no, I'm with you, but I thought it said, I thought at one point it said the daughter. Uh, had given DNA to some degree, the mother and the daughter. Well, that would actually be, that would be doable as well. Um, I pulled up, so I pulled up uh, the Albany Democrat Herald. They had a uh, obituary for him. And that, uh, let's see if it's got anybody on here. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is going to end up being just some mincing of words. Uh, more than likely, two of his relatives did give DNA. Right, yeah. may not have been the two that were named. Yeah. Um, and there could have been some confusion about that that um, has caused this kind of chaos. Well, this, <laughs> this case got very little press. I thought it was a suicide. Yeah, they, they blew this case off. And I... Well, I actually... I don't... I mean, I don't necessarily blame the media. I mean, maybe law enforcement a little bit because when people commit suicide, like typically their bodies are found. Right. right? Yeah. Um, at some point or another, this body was found, but it was found in such a way that there's no way that he did this to himself. Right. Correct. And that makes it super sad. So the other parts of this case that are important to sort of think about are he was sort of, you know, he, he was sort of settling down or whatever. Um, but for the most part, he was a loner and a couple of people at work heard him talking about going camping, but for the most part, nobody knew his plans. Right. Right. And so what it boiled down to me was like, this has to be somebody random, right. That has done this to this man and it also has to be somebody that has like halfway buried some camping gear, right? Which makes no sense. Um, and then like tried to burn out his vehicle or maybe successfully burn out the vehicle. I'm not really sure. And so those are a lot of weird things happening there, right? Yes. For it to be a random situation. So it couldn't have been like directed and personal unless he had some sort of weird stock stalker right that followed him uh because he had plans to go out camping alone and so the odds of him coming across somebody you know are very slim 
Yep. I mean, somebody that's going to have this ill intention towards him yep. um, and have it result in the way that it does. And so even though I felt, I thought for sure Keys would have been gone by that point in time, but it is possible that he was either still in Oregon or he was back in Oregon headed to New York again, right? Correct. Yeah, I think the very first person who should be considered in a case like this, where a guy's in the remote wilderness, um, having found his camping gear buried, his car burnt out, and what was initially thought to be a suicide ends up being a homicide. I feel like the very first person they should consider is Israel Keys. Yeah, I think these um, are really the only cases that fit Israel Keys. Our hope is that there will be some sort of evidence that was left behind and that they'll be able to match it. Uh, because, see, that would take all the guesswork and speculation out of it. If they have, because uh, there's no reason for Israel Key's DNA or anything genetic material to have been near this man, right? Yeah. Um, and so if they could match the profile, uh, that would put it to rest basically uh one way or the other now i am not sure um this case falls at a time where they would definitely have been gathering dna not necessarily running dna uh like against you know codis or whatever um because this is that in between time right yeah where dna is becoming a thing basically but it's not quite as readily available and matches aren't as readily apparent as they are now. Right. And the other thing about this case was my understanding of it is there has never been a credible, serious suspect here. And that was one of my requirements to make it a possibility for keys in the first place was there wasn't really another option. It's a really strange um, case because there isn't anybody that fits. Um, even in the event that he had some enemies or something, the, f the fact of the matter was he went on this random camping trip and nobody would have known exactly where he was. Yeah, and I think the proximity to Israel Keys in time and place can't be ignored. Um, the, the fact... That's that's a big thing to factor into it because when once you've got a situation where you can't find an obvious motive, you know, you have to think, well, is this a serial killer? It just so happens that there's a high possibility that there was a serial killer. He wasn't yet a serial killer, but he was going to be, right? Yeah. Um, in the area at that time. And, you know, this isn't um this is not a normal disappearance. It's it's a very strange disappearance. Did you ever see why um, the body was mistaken to be uh, female? Uh, size and shape. The it, so one of the things that came through talking to Greg's family was Greg was a very unassuming person, and they uh, at least one person described them as almost effeminate, like. He was slight. He was small. He was lightweight. He, uh, like his bone structure and everything. There's a, I think there's still a picture on maybe the Clackamas County Twitter feed. He's, you know, he had kind of longer hair. Uh, he, he was a little guy. And I believe that that is where uh, the initial 
comparisons came in and basically his bone structure seemed the bone structure and the size of the bones seemed to be small. I think he's only five, eight, maybe weighed 120 pounds or something. Yeah. That, might, to me, that seems more, I mean, that's not an unusual size for a guy, um, especially to call it on remains. Right. I don't know. I, and the other thing that they were working with here is these bones had been burned. Right. Uh, that's one of the biggest things that come into play. I had questions that were... Ne so here's what happened with this case, and here's where it's at, and then we'll sort of wrap up our anniversary thing with any other thoughts you might have. Um, I sort of went through, and I pulled all the applicable time codes of Israel Keys talking in his massive amount of, of interviews. Um, I think there's 24, 25 hours of them that we have. Um, in the conversations where he mentions being in a remote area, using a rope, uh, this was the, um, like, I, if you know an area, um, I didn't say it was a guy, all those things. I pulled them together and I handed them over to the Sheriff's Department initially and the FBI discussing this case. And um, I did speak a, a few different times with family members and I've spoken with um, some of the people assigned to this as a cold case. Now it, it has a detective assigned to it. They are combing through the evidence. It had a pretty small case file for a cold case, this old and that location. Um, so they were going to go through to see what they did have. Um, but I made the case that like, ropes, propane tanks, all of the things that were nearby. And I got the distinct impression that there was something about the way the bones were found that made them think this was someone who had been abducted and restrained. And I don't, they didn't say anything specific. I asked, it went unanswered. Um, I don't know if that meant they were tied up or what, but I got the impression that that is another factor to them thinking this was potentially a woman. Oh, I see what you're saying. I don't know if it was clothing with the body or a wig was there or it was tied in a way that looked, you know, made it, I don't know. There was something about it that made them say that, that, and I don't think it was just bone structure. I have not been provided with the specific information. Um, my guess is that this is a strangulation that uh, this is probably Israel Keys's first victim. Yeah. I can't figure out. Um, Cause I would have to say like, if you know, it wasn't keys, um, I haven't seen anything that's pointing it to like a, another suspect. Have you? No, they, it's almost like it would have to be another serial killer. They've had a couple of weird things happen with this case where they've wondered that. Um, there has there was a confession in this case that made no sense and didn't line up with any of them. Um, I do not have the suspect name. I just know that it completely fell apart. Time, place, manner wasn't possible. It it was it was a loony confession, is what I was. Thinking. Yeah, I haven't seen anywhere where it was confessed to. So. That was not that was that's from 
that's from internal. Yeah. It fell apart. And that, um, that does happen in cases where you have people who confess to things that make no sense. Anyways, that's, that's what I have as far as an Israel keys update. I figured his, the, the 10th anniversary of his demise would be as good a time as any to, to put out a little bit of that information. Did you have anything else on this? Uh, no, I, um, I hope, uh, yeah, I mean, I hope maybe something will come to, you know, a full circle. It's, it's amazing how hard it is. I, I really, having studied, uh, how DNA has progressed and everything, uh, there's no reason why, uh, DNA testing from potential crime scenes or from known crime scenes against potential uh, perpetrators. For example, in this case, any sort of profile that was done uh, from the evidence that was recovered from any of the multiple uh, Greg White like scenes, right? Like where his, his camping equipment was found, his vehicle was found, and then he was found. Um, it is not, a huge process to compare that to say Israel keys, uh, known DNA profile. Right. Correct. And so, um, I'm amazed at how it seems like it is such a big deal. Not that we would know if it had been compared. Right. Actually, I got the very distinct impression. It had not, it hadn't even been considered. Right. In this case, yeah, when you were talking with the... Oh, um, they had no idea. But uh, by the time I got done, they... I thought it was really interesting. You asked me something really specific about... Um, you were like, where does it say this, that, and the other? And I went back to my, like, categorize index notes, right? Yeah. And I found it, and I pulled out, like, what you wanted. And I thought to myself, well, like... Um, how much more of the job do you want me to do for you? And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the investigator, right? Um, because it was like they had, like, I mean, yeah, it, it was a lot to listen to, but the clues are very specific, I thought. Yes. And uh, to me, it seems like it should, it, we almost need it to be like, uh, a mistake proof situation where like stuff like that's automatically run. I was under the mistaken impression that that would be the case, but I don't think that that's the case. Um, well, this, this case, I, you know, th this case falls in a weird time where they didn't have a reason to run any of it. They bear like, even if there were fingerprints pulled at this time, like back then in 1998, they would, they could have run them, but it would have been a much more limited run than it would be in 2022. Well, I don't know about fingerprints, but with DNA, I would, it should hit, uh, immediately if it's going to, I don't, I don't think they would have automatically run DNA at all back then. Well, I, no, not back then. But what I'm saying is I have been under this, uh, a, you know, presumption that, I mean, they, they go through the trouble of collecting the stuff from the crime scene, right? I mean, the avalanche of DNA cases being solved has come from the fact that all this stuff was preserved in 40 year old cases, right? Yeah. And so they go through the trouble of collecting this stuff and, you know, 
all it takes. The collecting of it is like the, the outlying part of actually being able to get DNA is because somebody had the forethought to collect the evidence. Because now, um, like, in, for example, in this case, uh, in 1999, they determined Greg White um, had died and his manner of death was homicide, right? Yeah. Um, they have not released his cause of death, have they? Have they? Since? They have not. No, it's not been publicly okay. released. He he's had very little information about him released at all. Right, and so being the fact that this is an open homicide case um, from uh, nineteen ninety eight, it seems to me like all the evidence that had been collected, unless they didn't collect it. Do you have any idea if, like, maybe his camping stuff wasn't collected? They collected a lot of evidence in this case. Well, that that's interesting to me, I guess, because it was a missing persons case. But, like, if they really thought it was a suicide, it would seem kind of odd for them to have kept all that stuff as evidence. But maybe because he was missing. Um, but it seems to me like they would have at some point... Because I just... How many open murder cases does uh, Clackamas County have? Do you have any idea? Oh, like open unsolved that they're advertising? Is that what you mean? Or well, anything that you could compare this case to whatever um, you want. I mean, I, I think if you go on their like police department page, I mean, sheriff's department page, they have like 20 cases listed here, but several of them say solved beside it. Um, they have some unidentified human remains on the same page. Okay, so... Uh... So Olga is from here. We talked about her in season one. She was a, a young girl that walked away. Um, so, the, they've got, so she's a missing persons case. Right, they have them all so, here together. They have maybe seven homicides on here. All right, well, let's just... I just, this is important, so let's look through it really quick. Okay, we've got a murder in 2009, and that is Joseph Patrick Haley. He's solved. Yeah, it is solved? Yeah, they made two oh, arrests. Yeah, okay. They just haven't removed it from the website. Okay, and then we got Andrew William Corpe. Yeah, so he's he, he was dumped there. He's not solved, but that's a... That's a very okay, difficult. So that's case. one unsolved murder case. Then we've got the 2005 unidentified human remains is a murder yeah, case. I only want. Oh, it is a murder case. Yes, it's being. It's an open homicide case. I don't know if it is a murder case. It's being investigated as a, a homicide. Uh, okay, so that'd be two. And then Greg in 1998. Okay. Um, and then there's. So Jennifer Delp is open as a murder and a missing persons. Uh, there's a murder from 1975. It's a double homicide. I don't see where Jennifer Delp is a murder. Oh, she's presumed to be murdered. Okay. Yeah, she is a murder case. Like four, five, six, seven, eight. And re there's a Ted. There's a Ted Bundy case there. So technically, that one's open. It's just running back through. So, like, there's a Ted Bundy, ca Bundy case. Yeah, in 1973, uh, Rita Jolly is her case is there. 
Okay, so there's nine cases. All right, here's my point. Sorry that that took such a long uh, turnabout. <laughs> okay, uh, there is no reason that all the evidence that's available in these nine murder cases that they have, okay, whatever it is, it should be in the system to be cross-referenced against any profiles that are being um, generated, Okay, that means like all the offenders that go into CODIS, um, it should be there and available. There's only nine unsolved cases, at least here on this uh, collection of them, right? You realize that when you get the information loaded into CODIS as uh, profiles from a crime scene, the computer's algorithm does the work for you. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. And I, hopefully the algorithm will, will shake this one out. I, Regardless of whether this is keys or not, I just, I, I really just hope it gets solved. Um, so I'm hoping that that um, this particular case, and there's one other one out there, not keys related at all. I hope those, oh, this case is get solved. And, I mean, I do think that, that, that weird, I would call it a donut hole in time where it's like the late 90s. And not as much stuff is entered. I hope that that resources are made available where all of these investigators are able to put that stuff in there and do the appropriate matching to close a lot of these cases. And that that's it. That's all I've got on Israel Keys. Um, unless you come up with something else or I come up with something else. For now, this is I'm always working on Israel Keys, and I know you're always working on Israel Keys, um, but. We're headed into the holidays, and um, I, I won't be working on Israel Keys over the holidays. Uh, those episodes will start in a few days, and, and they'll run until we run out of material. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com, and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at TrueCrimeXS, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com, and you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time.
Thank you.